then Brother Emmanuel Torres and Brother Garrett Pertel will finish up tonight. Amen. Let's clap our hands together as Brother Brock comes to this point. Praise the Lord. Tonight I'm going to be reading out of John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. Jesus, therefore again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. You may be seated. I'm going to give a little bit of backstory to this story, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Mary was, Martha was very close to Jesus. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Jesus, when he heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. What he's saying here is this sickness and this struggle that you're going through isn't going to end in death or sickness. It's going to end in glory to God. Going to verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was six, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Verse 11, these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. God was not speaking of sleeping and rest. He was speaking of sleeping. He was dead. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. What he is saying here is, I am glad that I was not there, so that to the intent or the outcome that somebody may believe or have a stronger faith. Then said Martha, skipping to verse 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been there, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And I love Jesus' response here. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Going to verse 34. And, said, where have, and Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 38. This is what I read before. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. In this situation, we see Martha, who is of little faith in this moment. She told Jesus that if Jesus would have been there, her brother would not have died. But Jesus said in verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Sometimes God is going to put you through struggles and trials in your life to strengthen your faith. But Martha was thinking in the carnal mind. The carnal mind tells us that Lazarus is dead, the situation is hopeless. The carnal mind tells us that the struggles won't end and we just need to give up. The carnal mind tells us you've been praying for years for your struggles to end. You just need to give up. The carnal mind tells us you've been praying for quite some time for your family to come to church now. Nothing's going to happen. You need to give up. 
But the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ tells us, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. My own understanding tells me that Lazarus is dead and he's been dead four days. It's over. But when I use the mind of Christ and I think in that mind, I know that, yeah, Matt Lazarus, he may be dead. But I know a God who can make anything possible. I know a God who can raise from the dead and make the hopeless situations hopeful. Amen. Jesus told Martha, take ye away the stone. Take ye away the stone. Martha basically said, it's too late. He's been dead four days. There was a stone in Martha's life that was hindering her from getting her blessing. There was a physical stone in her life. But there was also a spiritual stone. That spiritual stone was unbelief. She had to physically move a stone to get her blessing. All Martha needed was to have faith, and she would have her miracle. Going to John chapter 11, verse 40. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where he was dead, and laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee. That thou hast heard me. Going to verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. As I read through these scriptures, I begin to think back upon my life. What is a stone that I have in my life? What is something that is hindering me from furthering my walk with God? What's something hindering me from getting my blessing? This is basically what I've come to talk tonight about. What is the stone in your life? Is your stone unbelief? Don't, don't you think Martha didn't believe whenever Lazarus was dead? And God still raised her brother from the dead. And you best believe that if God can raise her brother from the dead, God can help you in your struggles. God can bring your family to church. Is your stone pride? Is your stone laziness? Is your stone lust? Is it jealousy, deceitfulness, guilt? If your stone is pride, if you are too prideful to call upon the name of the Lord, how can he go down to your situation and help you? If your stone is jealousy, Jacob was jealous of his brother's birthrights, and God still used him because he learned to remove the stone. If your stone is deceitfulness, Jacob also deceived his father to get his brother's birthright, and he learned to move that stone, and Jacob was mightily used. If your stone is guilt in this place tonight... Saul, which was later Paul, killed the church and later preached to the church. Don't you think Paul felt guilt? If you feel guilt in this place, just know that our God can forgive you of all of your sins and forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how big of a sin you've committed. God will forgive you. The young rich ruler didn't take away the stone. He had a stone of his love for money was his stone. He went to God, and he wanted to be used by God, and he wanted to follow Jesus. And he said, I followed all, your, all of your commandments. What must I do now? And Jesus told him, said, sell your riches and follow me. But he walked away saddened because he didn't want to let go of something that he prized, and he, he had more of a priority than he had with God. 
Take ye away the stone. Once you take away the stone, God can use you. It all starts with faith. Take ye away the stone in faith, and God can heal your sickness. Take ye away the stone in faith, and God will give you your blessing. Take ye away the stone in faith, and God will answer your prayer. Take ye away the stone in faith, and God will save your family. Take ye away the stone in faith, and God will use you in his kingdom. The people you hang around can be stones in your life. The things they do around you can hinder you from furthering in your ministry. Sometimes you just have to let go of those things and understand greater is my reward in heaven. I know this may be fun for the time, but I have an eternity that I need to go to. Amen. Sometimes it's the things you listen to, the things that are rotting your brain, the music that says stuff that just, that just pulls you back. Maybe it's the things you watch whenever nobody's looking. Maybe it's the things you say. What is your stone tonight? What is your stone? God is wanting to move in your life, but first you have to take away the stone. Take ye away the stone. Amen. All across this place, let's lift up our hands and glorify the Lord. Anything that is not of me and anything that is not of you, Lord God, take it away from me in my life, God. So you can add something unto me in this place. Oh, Jesus. As we all stand together for my opening scripture, that's the first Samuel chapter 17 and verse number 48. And it says, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. You may be seated. The story of David and Goliath is a very well-known story, but powerful in every way. As we know, David was a shepherd and a faithful servant to God who was faithful to his father and a firm believer of God's word and everything that he had gone through. And everything that he was to go through, he believed that God was going to be with him all of his days. Going into 1 Samuel, it was a battle that was set out between the Philistine and the Israelites. One was set upon one mountain and one was set upon another with a valley that was set between them. It is said that the battle was an array and one of where there was not a lot of action in the battlefield. And Goliath, who was defined as a champion and one who was specifically designed for hand-to-hand -hand combat, studies show that he was up to nine feet tall and that he had every weapon that there was to have in this battle. And one whom enemy speared at just the mention of his name. And the scripture says that for 40 days he went out commanding that the Israelites are to send a man to go into battle and to fight for their armies. And that whoever is to be killed, that their armies are to be servants to the opposing army. There was so much at stake and too much on the line for the Israelites to step out because they felt that they were no match for this champion. David, who was obeying his father's orders to go and check upon his brothers in the war, heard of this champion at the time of his coming forth demanding and commanding all of these statements that he was making earlier. And he had seen that no one was willing to step forth to go and fight this Philistine. David's curiosity began to arise and wondering why no one was stepping forth. And even him, he had said, I declare myself to go and fight this champion. Now I imagine in that camp that there were a lot of people murmuring and a lot of rumors going around and wondering why that there was no one willing to step forth or why was a shepherd boy who was inexperienced in a war to go and fight this champion. 
Even Saul himself had went before David telling him that you're too inexperienced to go into this war and that you're too inexperienced to go against this champion. David then told Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 37, he said that the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. David was very confident in the battle that he was about to face, that the Lord was going to be with him. And he, at the time, had going forth of his war and his battle against the Philistine, he had drawn his choice of weaponry, which was nothing but of a rock and of a sling. Going into verse number 42, and it said, And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver, deliver me into my hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from me, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistine this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, and going back to my opening scripture in verse number 48, and it said, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. In today's world, our enemy, the adversary, is much like the Philistine that was constantly going out and mocking the Israelites and trying to get them to come forth. But no one was so, they were so fearful of the fact that this Philistine kept coming forth and kept mocking them and criticizing them, telling them that they have to send somebody to go and fight. As we go to our jobs, he is there. As we go to our schools, he is there. As we go to our homes and lay our heads down at night on our pillows, he is there, constantly putting fear into our hearts and doubt into our mind, trying everything he can to try to bring it down to a point of where it is that we can't even walk into a service with our head on our shoulders. Going back to my opening scripture, a key word in which really stood out to me, and it said that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. Hasted in the word of dictionary defining excessive speed or urgency of movement or action. Now reading that scripture, I couldn't help but get a little fired up. As if you were to look into the battle and see David running toward this Philistine. Just with nothing but a rock and of a sling. He had nothing but just a rock and a sling going against this nine foot giant. That's what studies say. And that there are times... In this place that when we look out and we can see people that there's just something different about the way that they worship. That they have been through different battles and they have been through different circumstances. But then when they come in here, they come in with their heads lifted and their hands ready to praise. As David was ready to go into the war, he ran toward that Philistine. He didn't come in with his head down, but he had confidence in God. And that whatever he was going to go through, he was going to do it with some haste and an excessive speed and a sense of urgency. I can point out, Brother C.J. Casey, there's something different about him when he comes into this place. I know he goes through struggles, and I know he goes through pain, and I know he goes through heartache. Each and every one of us go through it. 
But he doesn't come here with his head lit down, facing down in his hand tied to his hip. But when their servants get going, he's dancing, he's shouting, he's giving everything he's got because he's doing it with a sense of urgency. All across this place, let's lift up our hands with a sense of urgency. It's time to let our adversary know that we are not going to back down, but everything we do, we're going to do it with a sense of urgency. When the enemy tries to come into our life, that we are going to keep pushing and fighting with everything that we got. Here, my first point has been made. I'm about to make my second, so hear me out. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and beginning with verse number 49. <coughs> and it said, And David put his hand in his bag and took thence the stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. That the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. And it said that so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Now imagine that to what the Philistines were imagining. That's just nothing but a rock and a sling and a shepherd boy who was too inexperienced to go into this war. What's running after the Philistine? After he had just knocked the Philistine down with just nothing but a rock. And it said that therefore David ran. He didn't walk. He ran. He did it with haste. He did it with a sense of urgency. And it said, and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now David not only was making a declaration of spiritual warfare in that moment, but he was making a declaration of spiritual warfare for his future enemy. That no matter what the enemy were to go against in his future, he was forever going to be known as that. That, that, that shepherd, I was going to have a sense of urgency and war, a sense of urgency and prayer, a sense of urgency and outreach, a sense of urgency and jumping for joy, worshiping with everything he's got. David, he had something different about him. He didn't do it anything with just a uh, slow pace, but he was going to do it, letting his enemy know that anything I do and anything that I face in my life, I'm going to do it with a sense of urgency. All across this place, lift up your hands, lift up your voice, and praise God with a sense of urgency. Let your actions speak louder than your words all across this place, honey. You may stand for the reading of the word. Tonight I will be reading from Psalms chapter 34, verses 17 through 20. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of, delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones not one of them broken. And for tonight, for a little bit, I want to speak to you about the consistent and constant prayer of a wavering heart. You may be seated. In life, we all go through things, our own trials and tribulations, things that may, things that may get in our way, obstacles that are, seem too big for us to overcome. But there's a certain way, there are two ways 
that we can react when we go through the biggest trial of our life. We can be consistent and constant in our prayer with God, or we can let our problem consume us, and we can let sin enter into our heart. By being consistent and constant in prayer, there are many perks. There's some history about this in the Bible. Let's go take a look at Daniel. One out of the many trials he faced was when there was a new law in the land saying that he could not praise God and he could not worship his God, but he could only praise the king. Now, yes, that was hard for Daniel to hear and understand, but he knew that by being consistent and constant in prayer that it would pay off eventually. So Daniel, knowing the new law, continued to be consistent, continued to be constant in prayer. Even though he did get caught and got punished and was thrown into the lion's den, not one of those lions touched him, for he was consistent and constant in prayer and came to God, and God met him where he was at. Let's take a look at Paul and Silas. When Paul and Silas were going around preaching God's word, they were, they were captured by soldiers that didn't like what they were saying. They were beaten and bruised and were thrown into prison for being Christians spreading the word of God. But through it all, they still had time to be consistent and constant in prayer. They did not waver. Yes, it was hard. They were hurting. They were in pain. There was probably a little bit of fear, probably a little bit of anger and bitterness of what was going to happen. But they sat there, and they praised God, and they were consistent and constant in prayer. And God met them where they were at and delivered them and freed them out of bondage. Now let's take a look of ourselves today. How do we react when it comes to our trials and our tribulations in life? How do we view it? We can act like Daniel, Paul, and Silas and be consistent in our prayer and constant in prayer. Or we can let our trial, our problem, and our obstacle consume us. We can sit there angry at the world, bitter, sit there frustrated, not understanding what's happening. We can sit there frustrated about others. As we are going through the trials of our lives, maybe we are indulging into the lust of the flesh. Maybe we are doing things we're not supposed to be doing. Maybe we're seeing things we're not supposed to be seeing. Or maybe it's just a trial that God has put on our lives to test us to see how we react. And we get frustrated. Maybe we get angry towards others because we see others. They're ascending, ascending into the kingdom of God while we're descending and descending into the kingdom of God. And it feels like we're going 10 steps forward only to get knocked back to the very beginning. So we get frustrated. We don't know what to do. We get frustrated towards others, and that's when anger and bitterness starts to set in our heart. Maybe we're frustrated with God because we think, God, you made me this way. This is, God, how is this my fault? You put this on my life. You made me this way. This, this is not where I wanted to go, but this is your fault. And God is saying, this is not my fault. I didn't set this. I didn't want you to indulge yourself into the lust of the flesh. I didn't want you to see that. I didn't want you to engage in this. But this is your choice. I am here. You could have came to me in the very beginning when you were hurt and you had pains. You could have came to me. But you chose to sit where you're at. You chose to sit in the trial. And you feel like you cannot overcome your trial. You feel like you cannot overcome your obstacle. You sit there angry, bitter, and it's written all over your face. We come to church angry and bitter because we don't know when our trials end. We're focusing on the now and the present, not the future. We're not thinking of what the outcome may be. We're not even thinking that prayer is the option that we should be consistent and constant in our prayer. Our heart is wavering and so are we and we decide to stay where we are, bitter and angry. So we come to church head down. 
We can't even lift our arms to pray. It's written all over us as the weight of the world is coiled and trapped around our body, squeezing us tighter. The weight of the world is on our back, and we're just living day to day. Living day to day is like it's, like it's the end. And we didn't have to do this. We could have came to God. We God could have came to us where we were at. But we stand there, and we're, we're constantly struggling. We think we're never going to make it. We don't think we're going to come out of this trial. We don't think we're going to overcome the obstacle. And God said that if you would have came to me a long time ago, I would have grabbed everything. I would have took care of everything. There are some deep-rooted issues that you don't even know are there that I know are there. I could grab your heart. I can mold you and shape you to who you're supposed to be. I can use you for your kingdom. Your deep-rooted issues, your anger and your bitterness, it could be gone if you come to me. You don't have to look to the left. You don't have to look to the right. You don't have to search for things in this world. You don't have to entertain the things of this world. You don't have to go places. You can come to me, for I am with you, and I have never forsaken you. And here we are, still struggling, living day to day, adding more stuff into our situation, adding more pain, adding more hurt, adding more anger, adding more bitterness. We start to seclude. Little do we know we are dying spiritually. We don't know that we're dying spiritually. We come to church, pretend like everything's okay not realizing that people can actually see us, that God knows. God knows. And we sit there frustrated about things in this world, frustrated about life, thinking that it's everyone else's fault when it's really ours. Because we weren't consistent and we weren't constant in prayer. In the very beginning, we should have came to God. We should have been consistent. We should have went to him. For he is our answer. He knows every pain, every hurt, every sorrow. We can't forget, we cannot forget that when we're going through the trial of our life, when we're going through tribulation and obstacles, that we must go to God. Because he will meet us where we are at. And he will heal every broken thing in our life. He will mend us back together and mortise and shape us. And at the end of the day, we will come back stronger than we were ever been. We cry about situation after situation. And God is standing in front of us. We are so blinded by anger. We're so blinded by bitterness. We're so blinded by addiction. We're so blinded by lust. We're so blinded by the things of this world that we don't even realize that he's standing waiting. And all we have to do is call out for him. We just have to call out for him. And God is like, if you come to me, I will give you what you need. I will supply your needs. I will fill the empty void that you have in your heart. You don't have to go to this person. You don't have to go to that person. I am here. You want to see your loved one back in church? Then you need to be consistent and constant in prayer. When you are down and you're in the struggle of your life, you need to be consistent and constant in prayer. If you want anger and you want bitterness to fade, you need to be consistent and you need to be constant and pray. You want your addiction to leave? You need to be consistent and constant in prayer. You want peace and happiness overflowing in your life? Be consistent and constant in prayer. You want God's hand and his blessing and his calling on your life? Be consistent and constant in prayer. For God honors a person, a young person, a married couple, anyone who has the time and they have 
they have time to come to church. Even though they're going through the trial of their life, they have time to come to church and come to him and be consistent and constant in prayer. For the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Come to me and I will get your healing. Come to me and your blessing will be here. Come to me and I will supply your needs. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to remember that in the trial of our lives, through every obstacle, when our heart is wavering, that we, we must be consistent and we must be constant in prayer. Praise the Lord. Let's just call on the name of the Lord right now. God, I worship you, Jesus. I praise you, God. I magnify you, Jesus. You are worthy, God. You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy, Jesus. If you guys would remain standing for the reading of the word, I'm going to be reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Reading with verse number 3, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. You may be seated. We find that Jehoshaphat, along with the people of Judah and the people in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, are, are fearful. They are fasting and they are praying. They are before the new court or the outer gate, the outer fence of the tabernacle coming before God because of the news that they have found in the two verses before the text that I've read tonight, that there are going to be three armies that are going to come to fight against them to battle, not to bring peace, not to bring gifts or try and make a treaty, but to destroy the people of Judah. And these people are the Ammonites, they are the Moabites, and later on we find out the third, that they are the people of Mount Seir. And so as we might have, Jehoshaphat has some questions for God, and these are not the typical questions of, why is this happening to me, God? Or, or couldn't you have had somebody else in power when this goes on? But he is asking the right types of questions. And he asks, are you not God over all of heaven and over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And are you not the one that drove out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And Jehoshaphat is actually asking rhetorical questions. He already knows the answers to these. In Genesis 12 and 7, it says that the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. In Numbers 33 and 2, it says, Moses was told to record the goings out according to their journeys. And if anybody would have had access to these records of their people, it would have been King Jehoshaphat. But the people also knew that God was a jealous God. God was the one and him alone that deserved the praise and glory for bringing them out of captivity. And so Jehoshaphat must have been asking these questions as a reminder to himself around and to the people around him that God is still the one that has done great things in our lives before, and he will be the one to bring us out of this. He ends his prayer by saying, We have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon you. We are nothing in comparison to the three armies that are coming against us. But we're setting our eyes to you. And just as the verse says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, 
There am I in the midst of them. The spirit of the Lord comes into the midst of the congregation. And he begins to touch a man by the name of Jehaziel. And he begins to prophesy upon what God has put upon his heart. And he said, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be dismayed. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You don't have a birthright to the battlefield. You don't belong fighting your enemies. You belong on the sidelines praising God while he fights your battles for you. And he continues on. He says that you just need to set yourselves. You need to stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. You don't have to fight. You just have to trust in God. You don't belong fighting the enemy. You let God do that. And so many times we feel like that's, that's what we have to do. We have to put ourselves on the battle. Coach, put me in. Put me in. I can do this. But God is telling them, you let me do it. We compare what we have to what the world has in maybe terms of finances or talents and abilities. And reality, what we should be comparing the world to is what our God has. For we serve a king. The finances of the world compare to a God that owns a cattle of a thousand hills. The talents and the abilities of what the world has compared to God's anointing. And when God's anointing begins to fall, he can literally change a life. Lives are literally changed, not just their mindset, but their actions that show forth. It's not just a, oh, I feel a little something. But God does something absolutely amazing when his anointing begins to fall. And so they begin to worship and praise God for the mighty word that went forth that night. And they rise up early in the morning, and as they get to the battlefield, Jehoshaphat defies the normal preparations of warfare, if you want to call it that. The enemy is, it said that they were able to find them, and, and I kind of skipped over that, but the prophecy that Jehaziel said, he said, you need to go up by the cliff of Z's and you shall find them, indicating that they would have been either able to hear them or maybe see them. They would have been able to see the enemy at the end of the brook or the valley. And so Jehoshaphat says, Look, I know, I know what they're doing, and I know they're probably getting ready. Maybe they could see them eating their last bite or drinking their last drink. Maybe they were putting on their gear, but Jehoshaphat does something a little bit different. His faith propels him forward, and he says, I know what they're preparing. I know what they're doing. I can see them myself. I can find them myself. But what we're going to do, he appoints singers, singers to praise the beauty of God's holiness, and singers to praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And I don't care if it's 896 B.C. on a battlefield, which is when this is, or if it's 2019 in GBFPC. When you begin to sing about God's mercy, when you begin to sing about God's grace, God will move and he will respond to your very need. In Jesus' name. And as they begin to sing and praise, God set ambushments against the Ammonites, Moabites, and the people of Mount Seir. And let me just say that when you praise God and when you praise the one true living God, you may not understand how God works. But when God does work, you kind of just have to back up and say it's just kind of a God thing. I don't know how it works, but when you practice dead religion and when you serve a dead God, when God begins to move, you become confused. And this is no exception. The Ammonites and Moabites, the verse says, it talks about that they, the wicked were confounded. They began to fight against the people of Mount Seir. And once they were destroyed, the Ammonites and the Moabites began to fight against one another. And God wrought a mighty victory that day. And it says that they had to come toward the watchtower to see what all had happened. I think what that means is if, that they were able to find them. They, they were so lost in their worship. They were so lost in their praise and enveloped in it that they were not just hanging over the cliff and looking and seeing, yeah, yeah, God's, God's still doing it. 
Yeah, he's still doing it. And they're, they're holding on to the cliff with one hand and praising God with the other. But I believe that they were so lost in their worship and so lost in their praise. It said that when they came toward the watchtower, behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth and none escaped. And God does always above and beyond what we can even think or ask. The people of Judah asked for a victory and God did that. But he blessed them in abundance. He blessed them in abundance with riches and precious jewels. And sometimes we hear abundance and we think, well, what is abundance? How big is abundance? The Bible says it was more than they could carry away. The blessings of God were more than they could carry away. I begin to think about what, what amount of people constitutes a tribe. Is it a church size? Is it the occupancy of this building, 800 plus people? Is it the size of Bakersfield? How many people really was it? Well, just in three chapters before where I read my text tonight in verses 14 through 19, it numbers the armies of Judah under their captains. In total, there were 1,160,000 men that were on the battlefield. And I don't think it's too far to say that in verse 13 of, of the chapter that I've read, it said that if it says that the women and the little children and the little ones were praying for the victory. They were there when God moved. So if they were praying for the victory, I believe that they were there with them praising God for the victory. So even if you just doubled the number, and that's being pretty conservative because they had a lot of kids back then, it says 2 million, that would be 2,320,000 people. It was more than they could carry away. And as the musicians come, not only was it so much that they couldn't even carry it away. It was so much so that they couldn't even carry it away in one day or in two days. It took them three full days to gather what God's victories and his blessings were. And I know so because it says on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the valley of Baraka or Bercha unto this day. And I wonder what Baraka meant. It means blessing. So let's reread that. They met in the valley of blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, consequently, for that reason, the name of the same place was called the valley of blessing unto this day. It might as well have been called the valley of their actions. God is, he is eternal and he will work and he will move and he will fight on our behalf. The majesty of Jesus and his train that fills the temple will always be. It always has been and it always will be. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My God is faithful. He's faithful in his love and in his victories. But what our valley will be called tonight will not be determined by what an unchanging, unwavering God does. But no matter how magnificent the work is, our valley will be named by what our actions are. It was called the Valley of Blessings because they blessed the Lord. Don't misunderstand me and think that I'm preaching about condemnation tonight. I'm just saying that no matter what your valley has been called, you can change the name of your valley. Has your valley been called the Valley of Broken Promises? Has your valley been called the Valley of a Destroyed Marriage? An unforgiving home life, the bondage of sin, the chains of wicked living. What do you want your valley to be called tonight? It says they came back to Jerusalem with joy. Do you need joy in your valley tonight? It says the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. God gave him rest roundabout. Do you need rest in your valley tonight? Do you want your valley to be called the valley of forgiveness? Then you need to show forgiveness. If you want your valley to be a valley of praise and worship, then you've got to praise and worship him. 
is my last point. It says the name of the valley was named so unto this day. Your kids and your grandchildren, your classmates, your coworkers will wonder why you still worship God and praise God and bless his name when you are in your valley. When it seems like you've gone to hell and back, people will still wonder why you're in church. Why you still just worship God. You know, I don't understand it. It just seems like every time I'm in my valley, Seth, I just bless God and God just blesses more dumpings on me. Dumps more blessings on my family and he dumps more blessings upon the things that I put my hands to. These altars are open. Don't mistake this as an altar call for Garrett Pertel or a response of what I have to say, but the word has gone forth out of several able mouths tonight. This is an opportunity to meet with God, an opportunity to praise and worship God. I know we've spent some time here giving honor where it is absolutely due, but let's just make this a house of worship where God can dwell. Lift up your voice and sing for joy. Clap your hands, make a joyful noise. Blow the trumpet and shout. Praise the call of victory. Through every freedom, use our bombs and 